Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're continuing our study of the book of Galatians. And to do so, we're looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we humbly acknowledge together, as your word has made known to us, that we are incapable of doing any good thing apart from you. And Father, what we desire to do here this morning is a good thing, but we acknowledge that we cannot do it apart from you. We cannot listen as we ought without your help. We cannot rejoice in your gospel as we ought without your help. We cannot live in accordance with your word without your help. And so we come now beseeching you through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to hear our prayers. And to speak to us, to speak to your people through this weak preacher. To cause joyful worship to come about through these weak and sinful hearers. Father, all of us together now look to your spirit to take the word and to make it effective in our hearts and lives. You have promised that you will do it, that your word will not return to you void. And so we ask for you to do that now in our midst. To the praise of of your glorious grace and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you appreciate the art form of movie making, but personally, I am a a pretty big fan. And I'm guessing that many of you are as well. Uh, One of my favorite movie genres, as a matter of fact, is actually the, the spy movie genre. As a matter of fact, yesterday was my day off, and so in between working on the sermon, I know that's not what you're supposed to do on your day off, but that's what I did, I was actually watching a spy movie. And it seems to me that I'm, I'm probably not alone in my appreciation for spy movies. And the proof of that is in the sheer number of, of spy movie franchises that we have here in the U.S. Just to name a few, and I'm not even going to go into all the standalone Uh, movies or television shows, just to hit the major movie franchises, first of all, you've got what? What's the first one that comes to mind? Probably James Bond, right? They just came out, I don't know if you guys know, know this, the 24th Bond film this year. 24 Bond films. You know why they've come out with so many of them, even as they've changed the actor? Because people like spy stories. They like spy movies, so Hollywood keeps pumping them out. Or, Or what about the Mission Impossible series? They came out with another one uh, this past year. I think it was the fifth one. And they're already talking about making a sixth one as well. Or lastly, what about the, the Bourne movies? 
If any of you have seen those, I'm sure, I know they did really well at the box office. They've made four, and they've already announced that they're going to come out with a fifth one next year in 2006. But you see, the point is that we love spy movies. That's why Hollywood keeps making them. We love stories about spies. And the reason for that is because we love stories where the stakes are high, don't we? And you see, in all of the spy movies, the stakes are always astronomically, almost unbelievably high. It's always a life or death situation, and usually on a pretty large scale, oftentimes involving an entire nation or, at the very least, a a large group of people. And you see, it's because the stakes are so high that the character is willing to set aside their true identity in order to take on a false persona. They're willing to pretend to be someone they're not so that they can blend in with the enemy, gather the information, and then use that information to their enemy's demise. And that fascinates us. It, it, it grips us. And what's interesting is that over the past week, as I've been studying this passage, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as I've been studying it, I've realized that this is a spy story. The story that Paul is relaying here to the Galatians as he writes them this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a story of espionage. And we know that because of what Paul says in verse 4. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So there you have it. That's exactly what a spy does. They secretly sneak into a community, then they spy out the information, and then they use that information to conquer and enslave their enemies. That's what spies do. But you see, what makes this passage the ultimate spy story is that the stakes have never been higher. Because we're not just talking about people's physical lives being endangered, like they are in most spy movies. We're talking about people's spiritual lives being in danger. Because what's at stake here is the very gospel itself. So then what's the situation that Paul is describing for us here? Well, the situation is that Paul has planted churches in the region of Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. If you were to pull out a map, that's what you would see. And if you go back to Acts chapters 13 and 14, what we see is that Paul and Barnabas planted those churches together. And these churches that they planted were largely made up of Gentiles. They were largely made up of of non-Jews because when... um, uh, Paul and Barnabas showed up in Galatia. They preached the gospel first to the Jews. You can see this back in Acts 13 and 14. But the Jews rejected them. The Jews said, we don't have anything to do with that. But the Gentiles were responding and were embracing the gospel. And so that's why these churches were largely Gentile. But you see, as soon as Paul and Barnabas had left these church uh, plants, excuse me, as soon as they were moving from one church plant to the next, problems arose almost immediately as soon as they left. Because false teachers began to creep into the churches. And what these false teachers were saying is that Paul wasn't a true apostle. And they said that because they were seeking to undermine Paul's authority and the very gospel that he preached. And the main way they attempted to do that was by lying about his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles. Because in essence, what they were saying is, listen Galatians, Paul didn't receive his gospel directly from Jesus like he told you that he had. Instead, he received it from the apostles in Jerusalem. So Paul's not even a true apostle. He's just just another disciple. And so guess what that means, Galatians? It means that the gospel he preached to you isn't the same gospel that the apostles teach. And so you've accepted a false gospel And so what you need to do then, Galatian churches, is you need to listen to us because we can teach you the true gospel. That's what these false teachers were saying. And sadly, many of the, the Galatian believers were believing these false teachers. And you see, that's why Paul is writing to them. 
Paul wants the Galatians to know that he's dealt with this brand of false teaching before. He's dealt with spies like this in the past when he went up to Jerusalem for a second time. And so he knows how these spies work. He knows that they've snuck into the churches in order to betray the believers with a false gospel and then return them to their former bondage. And so what Paul is doing here then is he is sounding the alarm. He's saying, I'm not the imposter, they are. And I can prove it to you. And the way Paul does that, specifically in these 10 verses, is he shows the Galatians what his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles looks like. Because the reality is that the Galatians had never seen Paul with the the apostles. Because Jerusalem was, was like 500 miles away or a boat trip across the Mediterranean. And so they, they didn't know what that relationship between Paul and the apostles looked like. Which meant then that the false teachers could make up whatever they wanted to about it and the Galatians wouldn't know any better. And you see, that's exactly what they were doing. They were making up lies about Paul and his relationship with the apostles. And so Paul, what he wants to do here is set the record straight. And here's how he does that. Paul shows the Galatians three commonalities that define his relationship with the apostles. Three commonalities that define Paul's relationship with the Jerusalem apostles. They share a common enemy, a common message, and therefore a common ministry. Common enemy, message, and ministry. So first, let's look at how Paul and the other apostles shared a common enemy. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me again. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, right off the bat, the first thing we need to note here is that the chapter divisions that we have in our Bibles, I'm I'm guessing some might be reading in the Greek, I doubt it, but if you're reading in the English, it's got chapter divisions, right? Well, we need to understand that those chapter divisions are not divinely inspired. In other words, God didn't give us the chapter divisions. Those were added much, much later, around the 13th century. And the reason I point that out is because sometimes the chapter divisions are helpful, in breaking up an author's train of thought, and sometimes they're not helpful at all. And the chapter division here between Galatians 1 and 2 is a great example of an unhelpful chapter division. Because what it does is it leads us to believe that, that Paul is introducing a new thought here. But, but he's not. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's continuing the argument that he began all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 11, where he says, For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. In other words, Paul is building on his argument all the way into chapter 2 here. And the way he does that is by showing the Galatians more of his biography. More of his story. And so that's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus, Along with me. Now, what Paul is referencing here is his second visit to Jerusalem, because he's already told us about his first visit back in chapter 1 and verse 18. And what he's telling us here is that he went to Jerusalem a second time, some 14 years after his conversion. And he took Paul, I'm sorry, Barnabas, he obviously took himself, and he took Barnabas and Titus with him. And the reason why Paul went to Jerusalem a second time is because of what he says in verse 2. He says, I went up because of a revelation. But what revelation is Paul talking about here? Well, I think Acts chapter 11 and verse 27 actually 
uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 11, verse 27, shines some light on this here for us. So if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and verse 27. Acts 11, verse 27. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. At this point, Barnabas and Paul had been teaching together in the church at Antioch every day for a year. And so that's where we pick up then in Acts chapter 11 and verse 27. It says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Holy Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now here's the thing. The visit to Jerusalem that Paul is talking about here in Acts chapter 11 is the same visit to Jerusalem that Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. He's referencing the same trip here. And what that means then is that the revelation that prompted Paul to go to Jerusalem was the prophecy of Agabus that a famine was coming. That's the revelation that sent him to Jerusalem. He was taking a collection for the poor to the elders there. But here's the question. Why would that be important for the Galatians to know? Why would they need to know that, that Paul went to Jerusalem because of a revelation? Well, the reason it would be important is because it makes it crystal clear that Paul didn't go to Jerusalem because he was summoned. And he didn't go because the apostles in Jerusalem had commanded him to. No, he went because God had commanded him through a revelation. And so what this proves then, yet again, is Paul's point that his ministry of the gospel did not depend on man. It depended entirely and completely on God and God alone. Now from there, Paul shows us in the rest of verse 2 that while he was in Jerusalem giving that collection for the poor, he also decided to present his gospel to some of the apostles. That's why he says in verse 2 that he set before them, though privately, those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, it's important for us to note here that Paul actually tells us who these influential leaders were. And he tells us that in verse 9. He says it was Peter and James and John. It was the, the inner circle, the three disciples who were in Jesus' inner circle during his earthly ministry. And so what Paul is telling us then is that he set before them the gospel that Jesus had given him, Paul, for the Gentiles. And the reason Paul did that, he tells us, was to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. But what does Paul mean by that? I mean, was Paul afraid that his gospel wasn't true? That his gospel was, was missing something? No, absolutely not. Because remember, Paul has now been preaching this gospel to the Gentiles for how long? The last 14 years. And so now he's questioning its validity after he had also, by the way, received it from direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now he's questioning it? That doesn't make any sense. Instead, what Paul is saying here is that he presented the gospel privately to these three apostles because he feared the possibility. Think about this. He feared the possibility that they might side with the false teachers. And the reason Paul feared that is because he knew that if the apostles gave in to the false teachers on even one point, then the gospel would be compromised and therefore completely lost. So here's the point. Paul is not questioning his gospel here. Instead, he fears the possibility that the apostles won't stand with him against the false teachers. Because if that happens, then all his labors and all his strivings to spread the gospel among the Gentiles would be in jeopardy. Now, thanks be to God, that's not what happened. Instead, we read in verse 3 that even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised 
though he was a Greek. Now, the reason this is significant is because it strikes at the very heart of Paul's disagreement with the false teachers. Because what the false teachers were saying is, yes, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, you should have faith in him. But you see, you also need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And you also need to follow the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be saved. And you see, that's exactly why these, we call these false teachers what? Judaizers. Because what they were trying to do is they were trying to Judaize the Gentile Christians by requiring them to obey all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in order to be saved. In other words, they were teaching that the gospel is Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus and you have to be circumcised. It's Jesus and you have to obey the law. And you see, that's a flat-out denial of the gospel. It's a denial of the truth, the glorious truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so what Paul is saying here then is that the Jerusalem apostles did not require Titus, who was an uncircumcised Gentile, to be circumcised. And so by extension, what that shows the Gentiles then is that Peter, James, and John don't agree with the false teachers like they were claiming. Instead, they agree with Paul. And the reason for that is because just like Paul, the apostles understood that now that Jesus had come, the ceremonial law had been fulfilled. And so you don't need to be circumcised anymore because Jesus was cut off for his people and he has now made them clean. And you didn't need to sacrifice goats and bulls and sheep anymore because Jesus was the once for all sacrifice for his people's sins. And you didn't have to follow any of the other seemingly hundreds of ceremonial laws. Why? Because their purpose was to point you to Jesus. And so now that Jesus, the reality, is here, you don't need the signs anymore. And you also didn't need to become a part of national Israel anymore. Because Jesus, who is the true Israel, has now come. And so you don't need to be in national Israel anymore. You just have to be in Jesus. But I want you to stop and think about just how radical this would have seemed to the Jews. Because this flipped their entire world upside down. Centuries and centuries of tradition flipped right on its head. And you see, that's why so many of them, in conjunction with their own spiritual blindness, couldn't see how this could possibly be true. They couldn't possibly see how Jesus' coming could do away with the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel. And so that's how these false teachers came to be. They came to be because they wanted to hold on to both the signs and the reality, to both the ceremonial laws and to Jesus as necessary for salvation. But you see, you can't have both. Because if you do, then guess what? You lose the gospel. You don't have the gospel anymore. And so that's why Paul says in verse 4 that returning to the old laws of Israel, now that Christ has come, would be a return to slavery. And you see, that's exactly what the false teachers wanted to do. They wanted to spy out the freedom that the believers now had in Jesus and returned them to the bondage of living under the law. That was the intent of the Judaizers. And so, how does Paul respond to that? How does he respond to them? He says in verse 5, and I love it, and we should all rejoice over this verse. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Because you see, what Paul and the apostles knew was that the gospel itself was at stake here. And they refused to compromise in that in any way, shape, or form. And so they didn't crack open the door even one bit for the false teachers to come in. Instead, they slammed the door in their faces in order to keep them out. And why does Paul say that they did that? He tells us in verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
See, Paul and the apostles understood that what was on the table here wasn't a mere difference of personalities or simply a a squabble over insignificant theological details. No, what was hanging in the balance was the gospel itself. And so what Paul is telling the Galatians here then is that both he and the other apostles, think about this, fought for them. They fought together to protect the gospel for the Galatians. Because think about it, if Paul and the apostles hadn't stood for the purity of the gospel on that day, then it never would have reached the Galatians. If they hadn't diligently fought against these spies that had snuck into the church, then the Galatians would have remained in slavery and they would have never been freed. That's Paul's whole point. And brothers and sisters, here's the amazing thing. If you can wrap your heads around this, that's true for you and me as well. Because when Paul and the apostles were fighting for the gospel, they were also fighting for you and for me. Why? Because we're Gentiles too. And so what that means then is that our hearts should swell with gratitude as we read this account here. Because what we're seeing is how God preserved the gospel for us through Paul and the other apostles. I don't think anybody put this better than perhaps the British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and here's what he said. He said, It is impossible for us to estimate how much we owe to the Apostle Paul. Of all who have ever lived, we who are a Gentiles owe more to him than any other man. See how he fought our battles for us? When our Jewish brothers would have excluded us because we were not of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, how bravely did he contend that if we are partakers of the same faith, Abraham is the father of all the faithful. That he was loved of God and the covenant was made with him not in circumcision, but before he was circumcised. And that we are partakers of that covenant. So you see, that's what Paul was fighting for here. He was fighting for us so that the gospel might be preserved for you and for me. And so what that tells us then is that we too should strive to preserve the gospel. I mean, I know that we aren't the apostle Paul. And I know that we don't have the unique office that he held as an apostle, but all the same, we too are to strive to preserve the gospel. Because that's what Paul was, in essence, telling the Galatians here. Contend for the gospel. Don't compromise on it. And so too, we are to stand for the purity of the gospel every chance we get. Every chance we get, especially in the church. Which means, by the way, that we had better prepare ourselves to be hated by the culture that we find ourselves in. You realize that, right? Because our culture is doggedly committed to tolerance in all things. And guess what? They're going to demand the same from each one of you. But you see, we can't do that. Why? Because then we'd be disobeying God. Because God has commanded us to be completely and utterly intolerant when it comes to the gospel. In other words, we can be tolerant about a slew of indifferent matters, even as the Apostle Paul was. You'll see that all over the place in his epistles. But we cannot, we must not, and we dare not be tolerant about the gospel. Because the reality is that God will hold us accountable for any such tolerance. And so that's why we, in turn, must be doggedly intolerant when it comes to the truth of the gospel. Not so that we can stroke our egos that we're right, but so that the gospel might be preserved to the glory of God who has saved us and for the good of those who will come after us. And so here's the point. Paul and the apostles had a common enemy. 
And that common enemy was the Judaizers, the false teachers who were demanding circumcision of the Gentile Christians. And what Paul and the apostles did is they stood against them together. They battled against them together. Because anyone who preached a gospel that was false was an enemy that Paul and the apostles shared in common. But that's not the only thing they shared in common. Paul and the apostles also shared, secondly, a common message. A common message. And we see that in verses 6 through 8. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me again. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Now, in these verses, what Paul is making abundantly clear to the Galatians is that the Jerusalem apostles added nothing to the gospel that Paul had received from the Lord Jesus, which is why he says in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves yet again, and we're going to ask it one more time after this. Why does Paul share this with the Galatians? Why does he share with them that the apostles added nothing to his gospel? Well, remember, keep in mind that Paul's whole argument here is that his gospel is not from men, but rather it's from God. And so if the apostles had added even the smallest item to Paul's gospel, the smallest truth, to the gospel that he had received from Jesus, that it would have been from men instead of from God. That's why Paul is emphatic here. They added nothing to me. As a matter of fact, Paul actually bends over backwards to show that even the apostles' influence meant nothing to him. Notice how he says twice that they only seemed influential. Or note also how he says that their position made no difference to him. Why? Because Paul says, God shows no partiality. In other words, when it comes to submitting to God's word and the revelation of the gospel, your title doesn't mean squat. Your position, even if it's that of an apostle, doesn't get you off the hook from having to yield to the revelation of God in His Word. Because all must bow in submission to the Word of God. And so since Paul knows that what he is setting before the apostles is the Word of God, is the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, he is no respecter of persons. And so Paul doesn't care who they are. He expects them to submit to God's word, not to Paul himself, but to God himself as he's spoken in his word through his apostles. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Praise be to God. Paul declared to them his gospel and they said, Paul, you know what? You're spot on. That's the exact same gospel that we preach, Paul. And we see that in verse 7. Paul says, on the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So, do you see what's happening here? Paul is not presenting his gospel because he's afraid that it might be wrong. Instead, he's declaring it to the, to the apostles to see if they will acknowledge it for what it truly is, the very word of God. And praise be to God, they do. Because Paul says they saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. In other words, the apostles didn't give any authority to Paul's gospel. Instead, they only acknowledged its authority. They simply acknowledged that it was very clearly from God himself. And you see, that's exactly what Paul 
was looking for here. He wanted to make sure that they were united in their gospel message, and by God's grace, they were. Even though they had received that gospel separately and on separate occasions from Jesus, they were still preaching the one true gospel. But what is that gospel? What is that good news? Well, stated simply, it's the glorious good news that God justifies the ungodly. And the reason that's good news is because all mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether with the law or without the law, all are ungodly. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so all are unclean before Him. Everyone stands guilty before the judge of all the earth. And therefore all are deserving of His infinite wrath for their transgressions. And yet even though that's what we deserve, the good news is that the Messiah has come to redeem us. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. And his name is Jesus. And he came to fulfill the law that you and I had transgressed. And he did that in our place so that we can be clothed in his righteousness. And he came to die on the cross for us, experiencing the wrath of God for our sins. And he did that in our place so that we might go free. And so because he has come, we don't have to live under the oppression of Israel's ceremonial and civil laws any longer. Because those laws were just shadows of the reality that is Jesus, the Messiah. And so that now that the Messiah has come, it's time for the shadows to be gone and done away with. And you see, all of this freedom is ours. Because God has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, I plead with you, hear me. This is the gospel. And there is no other. So accept no substitutes. Because while they may promise you freedom, in the end, all they really do is lead you to bondage and to slavery. So I beg of you, cling to the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel and guard the gospel with all that you are because to us, it is an unspeakable treasure. A treasure that others have laid down their lives to preserve for us. And by God's grace, may we be willing to do the same. So we've seen that Paul and the apostles share a common enemy, a common message, And lastly, let's see how they share a common ministry. Look at verses 9 through 10 with me. And when James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now in these verses, what we see here are actually two ministries that Paul and the apostles share in common. The first ministry we see in verse 9, which is a gospel ministry. And the second ministry we see in verse 10, which is a mercy ministry. And we're going to look at each of these in turn very quickly. So first, let's look at their common gospel ministry in verse 9. Paul writes, And when James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, while at first glance it may seem like Paul and the apostles have very different gospel ministries here, that's not actually the case. Because even though they're preaching to different audiences, their gospel is still one and the same. And I don't need to elaborate on that because we've already seen that very clearly from the previous verses. But where the difference lies then is not in their message, but in their audience. Because Paul would preach primarily, though not exclusively, to the Gentiles. And Peter would preach primarily, though not exclusively, to the Jews. 
And the reason for the difference is because that's what God had called them to. We saw that back in verse 7. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And the one who entrusted these ministries to them was none other than Almighty God Himself. But again, we have to ask ourselves this question, and don't worry, this is the last time we'll ask it. Why is Paul telling this to the Galatians? Why do they need to know that Peter and Paul have been called to preach the same gospel, but to different audiences? Well, remember, the false teachers were claiming that Paul's ministry was dependent on the apostles' ministry. And yet at the same time, they were also saying that Paul was getting the apostles' teaching wrong. Which would mean what? It would mean that Paul had preached a false gospel to the Galatians under false pretenses. But you see, Paul's biography here blows that argument right out of the water. Because Paul's ministries to the Galatian was completely independent of the Jerusalem apostles. And yet at the same time, Paul also reveals that the apostles agreed with him and not with the false teachers. In other words, let me try to make it really simple. What Paul is showing the Galatians here is that at the same time, his ministry is both independent from the Jerusalem apostles and yet also in agreement with the Jerusalem apostles. Why? Because they're both preaching the same gospel that they received from Jesus, just to different audiences. And you see, it was for that very reason that Paul says Peter, James, and John extended to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship because they were together for the gospel. Their fellowship was in the good news of Jesus Christ to Jew and to Gentile. And you know, Sovereign Grace, I find that very instructive for us. Because like Paul, we should be known for our fellowship with other churches in Bakersfield who hold to the same gospel that we do. Don't forget about that important caveat. That hold to the same gospel that we do. That is the one true gospel that was delivered to the saints once for all in God's holy and inerrant word. Because we can disagree with them on all sorts of non-essential doctrinal matters. But if we agree with them on the gospel, we should lock arms with them. And we should partner with them in gospel ministry. In other words, we should resist the urge to believe the lie that we're the only church in Bakersfield that's preaching the gospel. Because by God's grace, we're not. We're not the only church in Bakersfield that's being faithful to the Scriptures. Praise be to God. And so we should fellowship with those churches and with the believers in those churches because just as Paul and the apostles shared a common ministry, so too do we share a common ministry with local churches that preach the one true gospel. And did you notice what that looked like for Paul and the apostles? It looked like sharing the gospel with who? All peoples. Because Paul's going to the Gentiles and Peter's going to the Jews. And so who does that cover? Well, that covers everybody. Because in their day, everyone could be lumped into the group of either a Jew or a Gentile. Which means then that the common ministry of Paul and the apostles was the spreading of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And why were they doing that? In obedience to Jesus' command. Because Jesus had told them before He ascended to the Father's right hand that they were to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded them. And they could do that with utmost confidence. Because all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Jesus. And he would be with them. In them through the Holy Spirit. Even to the end of the age. And so you see brothers and sisters, that's exactly why we as a church partner with other local churches here in Bakersfield on mission together. Because we preach the same gospel. 
And so together, we send people to some of the hardest people groups on the face of the planet so that they might hear the gospel. Because that's the mission that Jesus has left us with. And it hasn't been left to us alone, but to all the churches that faithfully proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means then is that it should be our joy, our joy to pleasure, to, excuse me, to partner with other like-minded churches on this mission, even as it was the joy of Paul to partner with the Jerusalem apostles. So that's the first ministry that they shared in common. And the second ministry, very briefly, that they shared in common was collecting funds to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem because there were many. Paul tells us in verse 10, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, what's interesting to note here is how, is how this statement fits into Paul's overall argument. Because essentially what Paul is saying here is, listen, Galatians, Peter, James, and John added absolutely nothing to my gospel. Because they saw that it was deficient in no way, shape, or form. Instead, Paul says, the only thing they added was an encouragement to remember the poor. That's the only thing they added to us. And so you see, rather than verse 10 just being some, some throwaway verse, if you're just reading this, this passage here at a glance, what the context shows us here is that it's actually the capstone of Paul's entire argument. He's saying, listen, those pillars added nothing to my gospel, but a simple encouragement to remember the poor. Because they acknowledged that my gospel is from God and not from men. In other words, verse 10 was like the final nail in the coffin of Paul's argument about what his relationship with the Jerusalem apostles actually looked like. And you know, just briefly by way of application, I think it's important for us to be reminded that we're not just to care for one another spiritually. As important as that is, obviously Paul has made it abundantly clear how important that is, but we're also to care for one another physically. Because as image bearers of God, we're made up of what? We're made as soul and body. We're not just one or the other, we're both. And so what that means then is that we are to love and care for each other, soul, spiritually, and body, physically. Even as the apostles did. And I gotta tell you, Sovereign Grace, from the bottom of my heart, I am so encouraged by how well you love one another, both physically and spiritually. I mean, I am constantly hearing about the generosity of your love towards each other. And I oftentimes have a front row seat to watch it unfold to my great delight. And I thank God for that. You want to know why? Because that's not something coming from us, ultimately. Where's it coming from? It's coming from the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And so it's an evidence of God's grace that we are eager, even as Paul was, and the other apostles, to remember the weak and the needy in our midst. And so what God's word is encouraging us today in is to excel in that even more, even more. And as we do so, by God's grace, let us thank him for the pastors and teachers and leaders that God has raised up and used throughout the ages Know your history so you can know their names to preserve the gospel for us because we stand on their shoulders, brothers and sisters. And in keeping with that legacy, let us continue to stand against the enemies of the gospel for they are enemies that we share in common with Paul and the apostles and Almighty God Himself. And let us continue with great zeal to proclaim the gospel that we share in common with them as well. Because we have received it from Jesus through the apostles because it is they who are the foundation of the church. And lastly, 
Let us continue to proclaim that gospel to all men, everywhere, regardless of culture or ethnicity or religion or location or language or whatever else you can think of. Because the Lord Jesus has left us with the glorious task of proclaiming His excellencies here in Bakersfield and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so may we be about that sovereign grace, even more than we currently are, all the while knowing and rejoicing and resting in the truth that the Lord Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, our hearts are filled to the brim with gratitude for what we have read here in this passage. We're thankful that in your grace, Paul and the apostles saw the Judaizers as a, as a common enemy. Those who were preaching a false gospel and thus denying the truth of the one true gospel. We're thankful that they locked arms together to preserve the gospel for us so that we can hear it proclaimed even this very morning, this very hour. Father, thank you so much for how you provide for and protect your children. And Father, we're also thankful to recall the fact that Paul and the apostles also had a common message That common message that there's nothing for us to do to be saved. It's simply to look to Jesus in faith. The law is not necessary. It's not necessary for us to be circumcised or to sacrifice sheep and goats or anything else in order to be saved. It's simply to receive the grace that Jesus has earned for us, to be united with Him. And so that all that is His becomes ours. His atoning death His perfect life, His resurrection, and Father, that His Holy Spirit now dwells within us and has made us a new creation. And so, Father, as a result, we're thankful that Paul and the apostles also had a common ministry, both a gospel ministry and a mercy ministry. And we pray, Father, that we too would sacrifice greatly, whether we go or send, so that we could see um, You use us to spread the good news of your gospel to the ends of the earth. And that in that process, we would love one another well. Not just by praying for one another and preaching the gospel to another, one another and encouraging each other with words, but to physically come alongside of each other and say, you know what, you seem overwhelmed. How about we set up a meal schedule? How about I come and clean your house or do your laundry? Or how about we just go for a walk together? Father, I pray that we would love one another well. And Father, above all else, We're thankful for your grace towards us. We pray that we would trust from one degree to the next ever increasingly in what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. We pray that we would proclaim that with great might and zeal, knowing that he is with us even to the end of the age. We love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.